Hello and welcome to episode 73 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week in place of bets and headlines in the due context in the weekly podcast. And the first episode, and the first subject this week is COVID-19 laws. This is a very important story. This is a legal challenge by journalists John Waters and Gemma O'Doherty in Ireland, and this is in the Irish Times. State to oppose John Waters and Gemma O'Doherty challenge to COVID-19 laws. The state is to oppose a high court challenge by John Waters and Gemma O'Doherty aimed at striking down laws introduced by the state arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mr Waters and Mr O'Doherty claim the laws are flawed and unconstitutional. In judicial review proceedings against the Minister for Health, Ireland and the Attorney General, they seek to have certain recently enacted legislation declared null and void by a judge of the High Court. The legislation at issue includes the 2020 Health Preservation and Protection and Other Emergency Measures in the Public Interest Act, the 2020 Emergency Measures in the Public Interest Act, COVID-19 Act and the 1947 Health Act Affected Areas Order. Their proceedings are also aimed at striking down temporary restriction regulations brought in under the 1947 Health Act. Last week, the High Court directed the application for permission to bring the challenge should be heard on notice to the state respondents and the matter was returned for mention before Miss Justice Deirdre Murphy on Tuesday morning. Prior to the hearing, more than 100 supporters of the plaintiffs gathered in the four courts complex. Plaintiffs are obviously John Waters and Gemma O'Doherty. Some went into courtroom number one of the four courts while others congregated in, in the round hall outside the courtroom. A small number of Gardaí, that's police in Ireland, monitored the situation and cleared supporters from the courtroom before the judge came onto the bench just after 11am, arising from social distancing guidelines introduced by the Chief Justice and the presidents of the courts arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Gerard Meehan for the state told the judge it will oppose the application for leave to bring the challenge and ask for a two-week adjournment to allow his side prepare a sworn statement in response to the quite substantial challenge. While the state has been working on its response, things were taking longer to get done in the current climate, particularly when dealing with persons in the Department of Health, Council said. Given the part of the challenge concerns how the laws in question were enacted, the Dale, the Shenad and the Cairn come highly. The Dale and the Shenad are... Parliaments in Ireland, and the Kian Kamali is the chairperson of the Dale, would have to be added to the proceedings as notice parties, council added. Mr Waters and Mr Doherty represented themselves. While not objecting to the addition of the notice parties, they expressed strong concerns about the adjournment application and said the leave application needed to be heard as soon as possible. Mr Waters said the state parties were attempting to filibuster, procrastinate and delay a very important matter. Outlining the nature of the action, Mr Doherty said what was happening regarding the lockdown was outrageous. She said people were being held under mass house arrest or fear being interrogated by Gardai if they leave their homes. People should be allowed to go about their business and normal life must be allowed to resume, she said. The vast majority of people are unaffected by COVID-19, which she said was no threat to life. The Irish people should be allowed to go outside and build up a herd immunity, she said. Well, that's a good point, because if people don't build up an immunity because they're not circulating among people, as they usually are, they're locked in their homes, then when lockdown is lifted, the virus will still be circulating. So because you've not built up herd immunity, be at risk of catching it even if you accept that it exists, which as I've said before, I don't. But even if we accept that it does, surely it would make more sense for people to build up an immunity to it. The vast majority of the population are either asymptomatic, means they don't have symptoms, they don't know they've got it, or they recover from it if they do show symptoms. So 
there's only a small number of people actually die from it. And I've gone into the figures and how they're being manipulated in episode 69. Apparent cases and apparent deaths and how they're being manipulated and exaggerated. So it's only a small number of people who get the virus actually die from it. So given that, what danger to the public at large is there from allowing them to build up natural immunity to it? Cocoon the most vulnerable, quarantine them, whatever. Yeah, lock them down. Building up natural immunity actually makes more sense. The article continues. Ms. O'Doherty said expert medical evidence supporting her claims will be presented to the court as part of the case. Ms. Justice Murphy told Ms. O'Doherty the court was not at this stage considering what were substantial arguments in the action but was making directions with a view to getting the application heard. The judge said she accepted the leave application raised issues that needed to be heard and the leave hearing should be heard in two weeks' time. The judge adjourned the matter for a week when it will again be mentioned for the purpose of an update on the progress. Both applicants raised issues with the judge as to whether the proceedings were being held in public. An application to let some or all of the applicant's supporters into the courtroom was dismissed by the judge. The judge said the case was being heard in public and was being reported on by bona fide members of the media. She said not everyone could fit into a courtroom and wondered if a larger than capacity group wished to attend a hearing should the court have to move to the National Convention Centre. The applicants expressed their dissatisfaction over the judge's decision. The judge said that the digital audio recording of Tuesday's proceedings should be made available to the applicants. And there's another article also in the Irish Times which goes into a little bit more detail. Journalists tell High Court coronavirus laws unconstitutional. Journalists John Waters and Gemma O'Doherty have started a High Court action challenging laws introduced by the state in response to the coronavirus pandemic. In judicial review proceedings against the state and the Minister for Health, Mr Waters and Ms O'Doherty are seeking to have various pieces of recently enacted legislation declared null and void by a judge of the High Court. This includes the 2020 Health Preservation and Protection and Other Emergency Measures in the Public Interest Act, the 2020 Emergency Measures in the Public Interest COVID-19 Act, and the 1947 Health Act Affected Areas Order 2020. Their proceedings are aimed at striking down temporary restrictions introduced by the government. Ms O'Doherty and Mr Waters represented themselves in court as they applied for permission to bring their challenge. The matter, which was heard on an ex parte basis, where only one side is represented in court, was mentioned before Mr Justice Mark Sanfi. Mr Waters told the court that the legislation was unconstitutional, improperly enacted and very flawed. He said the challenge was brought on grounds including that the laws were brought in by a caretaker government and approved by Dale, while the number of TDs present for votes took was limited. He said it was also concerned that legislation was enacted by the outgoing rather than incoming Senate. The journalists told the court that they had concerns about the powers the new laws gave to Gardai and the effect that the laws, the lockdown and travel restrictions are having on people. The judge, who said that the court was only concerned about the legality of the legislation, challenged and not about any government policy, directed that the application for permission to bring the challenge be made on notice to the state respondents. He adjourned the matter for further mention. John Waters claims the legislation was not debated in the day or the Senate. There was no parliamentary debate. And he says he claims that there is no scientific evidence for social distancing or lockdown. And he cites the figures claimed in Sweden, even with the method of testing used. I have to bear that in mind. But looking officially at the figures of Sweden, much better than lockdown countries like Britain and America. Waters calls for herd immunity and cocooning the vulnerable, which I said earlier makes sense. Waters claims that unless the entire population is tested, there's no way to know the true numbers of live cases. Waters calls for serology antibody tests. 
Waters correctly points out the reporting and death certificate scam, which I've talked about in episode 69. Now, Peter Hitchens, who writes for the Daily Mail, has written some great stuff about the lockdown and the whole pandemic. And I'm going to feature a few of his articles in this episode. I'm going to start with this one. Peter Hitchens is shutting down Britain with unprecedented curbs on ancient liberties. Really the best answer. Some years ago, I had the very good luck to fall into the hands of a totally useless doctor. It was hell, and nearly worse than that, but it taught me one of the most important lessons of my life. He was charming, grey-haired, smooth, and beautifully dressed. He was standing in for my usual GP, a shabbier, more abrasive man. I went to him with a troubling, persistent pain in a tender place. He prescribed an antibiotic. Days passed, it did not work. The pain grew worse. He declared that in that case I needed surgery and the specialist to whom he sent me agreed with barely a glance. I was on the conveyor belt to the operating table. In those days I believed, as so many do, in the medical profession. I was awed by their qualifications, yet the prospect of a rather nasty operation filled me with gloom and doubt. As I waited miserably for the anaesthetist in the huge London hospital to which I had been sent, a new doctor appeared. I braced myself for another session of being asked, does this hurt, and replying between clenched teeth, that yes, it Lincoln well did. But this third man was different. He did not ask me pointlessly if it hurt. He knew it did. He was, crucially, a thinking man who did not take for granted what he was told. As I've said before, a lot of people in academia and in the professions do just unquestionably take what they're told. And they've gone through school, college, university, doing exactly that. Very few people ever question what they're told. But when you do, as I've shown throughout pay-per-view, you find that not everything is as it seems. The article continues. He looked at my notes. He actually read them, which I don't think anyone else ever had. He swore under his breath. He hurried from the room only to return shortly afterwards to say I should get dressed and go home. The operation was cancelled. All I needed was a different antibiotic, which he, there and then, prescribed and which cured the problem in three days. He was furious and managed to convey tactfully that the original prescription had been incompetent and wrong. That's another point. I've said before that there's a tendency, more than that in society now, to see everyone as a group. Everyone in this group is like this. Everyone in that group is like that. And that applies to people of a certain race, religion, gender, all the labels that people identify with. And it applies in terms of ability. Just because someone's a doctor doesn't mean necessarily they know what they're talking about. There are rubbish doctors who are incompetent. And there are great doctors who are world-renowned and who are excellent surgeons or whatever. It depends on the individual. And groupthink only ever causes problems because groupthink assumes that everybody of a certain type is the same and thinks the same. And it's never true because everybody's different. Uh, in terms of ability, if you trust someone just because they are a certain profession, then you're going to potentially cause problems for yourself. Because they may not be that good, they may not know that as much as you think they do. And so if you if you trust anyone and take anything as read, then you're asking for trouble. The article continues. The whole miserable business had been a dismal and frightening mistake. He was sorry. Heaven knows what would have happened if Providence had not brought that third doctor into the room. I still shudder slightly to think of it. But the point was this. A mere title, a white coat, a smooth manner, a winning way with long words and technical jargon will never again be enough for me. But that's interesting because I'm reading this article for the first time and it's exactly what I've just said. A lot of the time I'll read the article obviously before I record, but this one I'm reading for the first time. But it's exactly what I've just said in my own way. 
It never ever does any harm to question decisions which you think are wrong. If they are right, then no harm will be done. They will be able to deal with your questions. If they are, in fact, wrong, you could save everyone a lot of trouble. And so here I am, asking bluntly, is the close down of the country the right answer to the coronavirus? I'll be accused of undermining the NHS and threatening public health and all kinds of other conformist rubbish. But I ask you to join me, because if we have this wrong, we have a great deal to lose. Well, as I've said before, the idea that it's undermining the NHS is provably wrong for anybody who actually takes the time to check for themselves. Hospitals are empty. I'm not saying nobody works in hospitals now, but hospitals are empty. I'm not saying there are not patients in hospitals. Patients who have been deemed to be COVID-19 sufferers on the basis of a test, which is not actually testing for COVID-19, but a particular sequence of genetic material which I talk about in, I believe, the last episode, and certainly in episode 70. Yes, there are people there, but basically they're empty. Questioning is never a problem, because if what someone is asking or stating is rubbish, then it can be shown to be so. It's never a problem. The idea that questioning the efficiency of the lockdown is undermining the NHS is provable nonsense, because hospitals are empty. This is why, as you can see on YouTube, doctors and nurses have got time to make dancing videos. Supposed to be war zone hospitals. What are they dancing for? Well, they're dancing because they've got very little else to do. Anyway, the article continues. I don't just address this plea to my readers. I think my fellow journalists should ask the same questions. When you do what I do, you realise that journalists rarely ask questions. And if they did and communicated what they find as a result then we would live in a very different society. The article continues. I think MPs of all parties should ask them when they are urged to pass into law a frightening series of restrictions on ancient liberties and vast increases in police and state powers. But that's the idea to create a police state, as I've been saying since pay-per-view began. In fact, as I've been saying for over a decade now. Did you know that the government and opposition had originally agreed that there would not even be a vote on these measures? Even Vladimir Putin might hesitate before doing anything so blatant. If there is no serious rebellion against this plan in the Commons, then I think we can commemorate March 23rd, 2020 as the day Parliament died. Yet, as far as I can see, the population cares more about running out of lavatory paper. Praise must go to David Davis and Chris Bryant, two MPs who have bravely challenged this measure. It may also be the day our economy perished. The incessant coverage of health scares and supermarket panics has obscured the dire news coming each hour from the stock markets and the money exchanges. The wealth that should pay our pensions is shriveling. The share values fade and fall. The pound sterling has lost a huge part of its value. Governments all over the world are resorting to risky, frantic measures which make Jeremy Corbyn's magic money tree look like sober sound finance. And that's saying something. Much of this has been made far worse by the general shutdown of the planet on the pretext of the coronavirus scare. However bad this virus is, and I will come to that, the feverish panic on the world's trading force is at least. And then there is the Johnson government's stumbling retreat from reason into fear. At first, Mr Johnson was true to himself and resisted wild demands to close down the country. But bit by bit, he gave in. Why did he give in? Because of the predictions and computer models, which are notoriously unreliable computer models. The same computer models that have made predictions about human-caused climate change, which have not happened. And in the pay-per-view book, pay-per-view in print, now available at pay-per-view.uk, I totally, utterly demolish the human-caused climate change scam. But based on the computer models of a guy called Professor Neil Ferguson, who I talk about in the last episode, and 
tie that in with the World Health Organization, which I also expose, and tying it all into current events. The computer models that predicted that quarter of a million to half a million people could die in the UK, which even Neil Ferguson himself later revised down to 20,000. Based on those computer models, Britain was locked down when originally Johnson was resisting locking down. On the strength of the computer models alone, that was what did it. It wasn't cases, it wasn't deaths. It was the computer models that caused Johnson to lock down Britain. And computer models are only as good as the data that you enter into the models. They don't do any independent calculation. They only compute based on the data you enter into the model in the first place. So if the data is flawed, the information the other end will be flawed. And that is exactly what happened, as Ferguson admitted himself when he revised down to 20,000. Anyway, the article continues. The schools were to stay open. Now they are shutting with miserable consequences for this year's A-level cohort. Cafes and pubs were to be allowed to stay open, but now that is over. On this logic, shops and supermarkets must be next, with everyone forced to rely on overstrained delivery vans. And that will presumably be followed by hairdressers, dry cleaners and shoe repairers. Well, this was published on 21st of March, and look what's happened since. How long before we need passes to go out in the streets, as in any other banana republic? As for the grotesque bullying powers to be created, I can only tell you that you will hate them like poison by the time they are imposed on you. All the crudest weapons of despotism, the curfew, the presumption of guilt, and the power of arbitrary arrest are taking shape in the midst of what used to be a free country. Well, debate that, but certainly a lot more free than it is now. And we, who like to boast of how calm we are in a crisis, seem to despise our ancient hard-bought freedom and actually want to rush into the warm, firm arms of Big Brother. That's the way tyranny works. You can't encourage mass numbers of people into tyranny if you let them know it's tyranny. You have to do it under the guise of protection. Because then all but a few who actually question and investigate the claims are going to buy into it. Which is exactly what's happened. Imagine police officers forcing you to be screened for a disease and locking you up for 48 hours if you object. Is this China or Britain? Think how this power could be used against literally anybody. But that's interesting because even before this pandemic situation, what we're, called, what we're told is a pandemic, I was saying in pay-per-view... If you want to know the plan for the West tomorrow, then look at China today, because that's the model they want, and here we are now. The bill also gives ministers the authority to ban mass gatherings. It will enable police and public health workers to place restrictions on a person's movements and travel, activities and contact with others. Many court cases will now take place via video link, and if a coroner suspects someone has died of coronavirus, there will be no inquest. They say this is temporary. They always do. That's a good point, because... Whenever measures are brought in, apparently for this reason or that reason, some of them are rolled back, but some of them stay in place. And we really need to keep a firm eye on what is left in place and seriously critique whether that should be the case when all this is over. The article continues. Well, is it justified? There is a document from a team at Imperial College in London. That's the college of Professor Neil Ferguson, who I mentioned earlier. There is a document from a team at Imperial College in London, which is funded by Bill Gates, by the way, who I've mentioned before, who's absolutely central to this whole situation, which is being used to justify it. As I talk, I've actually mentioned the Bill Gates connection in the last episode. There is a document from a team at Imperial College in London, which is being used to justify this situation. It warns of vast numbers of deaths if the country is not subjected to a medieval curfew. But this is all speculation. It claims, in my view, this is Peter Hitchens' view, quite wrongly, that the, actually in my view as well, 
that the coronavirus has comparable lethality to the Spanish flu of 1918, which killed at least 17 million people and mainly attacked the young. There's more to know about that as well, which I might get into in another episode. What can one say to this? In a pungent letter to the Times last week, a leading vet, Dick Sibley, cast doubt on the brilliance of the Imperial College scientists, saying that his heart sank when he learned they were advising the government. Calling them a team of doom-mongers, he said their advice on the 2001 foot and mouth outbreak led to what I believe to be the unnecessary slaughter of millions of healthy cattle and sheep until they were overruled by the then chief scientific advisor, Dr. David King. And Neil Ferguson was part of the team then, if not leading the team as he is now. Why would, unless there is more to know about the situation, someone like Professor Neil Ferguson, whose predictions have continually proven to be not just wrong but ridiculously wrong including predictions about climate change which have not happened be called on to be an advisor indeed absolutely central to the reason for britain being locked down during such a serious moment in british history because that's what this is why would someone like someone with that record be called on at this time unless there's more going on than we're told and when you put that together with what I exposed about Professor Neil Ferguson in the last episode, you really have to question why he was chosen, of all people. The hard school continues. Dick Sibley added, I hope that Boris Johnson, Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance show similar wisdom. They must ensure that measures are proportionate, balanced and practical. I mentioned Chris Whitty in the last episode as well. Avoidable deaths are tragic, but each year there are already many deaths, especially among the old. Complications of flu leading to pneumonia. The Department of Health and Social Care tells me that the number of flu cases and deaths due to flu-related complications in England alone averages 17,000 a year. This varies greatly each winter, ranging from 1,692 deaths last season, 2018-2019, to 28,330 deaths in 2014-2015. The DHSC notes that many of those who die from these diseases have underlying health conditions, as do almost all the victims of coronavirus so far, here and elsewhere. As the experienced and knowledgeable doctor who writes under the pseudonym MD in the left-wing magazine Private Eye wrote at the start of the panic, in the winter of 2017-18, more than 50,000 excess deaths occurred in England and Wales, largely unnoticed. The article continues, nor is it just respiratory diseases that carry people off too soon. In the government's table of deaths considered avoidable, it lists 31,307 deaths from cardiovascular diseases in England and Wales for 2013, the last year for which they could give me figures. This, largely the toll of unhealthy lifestyles, was out of a total of 114,740 avoidable deaths in that year. To put all these figures in perspective, please note that every human being in the United Kingdom suffers from a fatal condition, being alive. About 1,600 people die every day in the UK for one reason or another. A similar figure applies in Italy and a much larger one in China. The coronavirus deaths, were, while distressing and shocking, are not so numerous as to require the civilised world to shut down transport and commerce, and to destroy the economy, by the way, nor to surrender centuries-old liberties in an afternoon. We are warned of supposedly devastating death rates, but at least one expert, John Ionidas, is not so sure. He is Professor of Medicine, of Epidemiology and Population Health, of Biomedical Data Science and of Statistics at Stanford University in California. He says the data are utterly unreliable because so many cases are going unrecorded. 
He warns this evidence fiasco creates tremendous uncertainty about the risk of dying from COVID-19. Reported case fatality rates at the official 3.4% rate from the World Health Organization cause horror and are meaningless. In only one place aboard the cruise ship Diamond Princess has an entire closed community been available for study. And the death rate there, just 1%, is distorted because so many of those aboard were elderly. The real rate adjusted for a wide age range could be as low as 0.05% and as high as 1%. As Professor Ioannidis says, that huge range markedly affects how severe the pandemic is and what should be done. A population-wide case fatality rate of 0.05% is lower than seasonal influenza. If that is the true rate, locking down the world with potentially tremendous social and financial consequences may be totally irrational. It's like an elephant being attacked by a house cat. Frustrated and trying to avoid the cat, the elephant accidentally jumps off a cliff and dies. The article continues. Epidemic disasters have been predicted many times before and have not been anything like as bad as feared. The former editor of the Times, Sir Simon Jenkins, recently listed these unfulfilled scares. Bird flu did not cure the predicted millions in 1997. In 1999, it was mad cow disease and its human variant, VCJD, which was predicted to kill half a million. Fewer than 200, in fact, died from it in the UK. The first SARS outbreak of 2003 was reported as having a 25% chance of killing tens of millions and being worse than AIDS. In 2006, another bout of bird flu was declared the first pandemic of the 21st century. There were similar warnings in 2009 that swine flu could kill 65,000. It did not. The Council of Europe described the hyping of the 2009 pandemic as one of the great medical scandals of the century. Well, we shall no doubt see. I talk about the swine flu pandemic in relation to... Professor Neil Ferguson and the World Health Organization in the last episode in terms of how it became an apparent pandemic in terms of classification as a pandemic. But while I see very little evidence of a pandemic and much more of a panic-demic or, as I would say, a plandemic, as some people are saying as well, I can witness on my daily round the slow strangulation of dozens of small businesses near where I live and work, which is exactly what I've said since pay-per-view began was the plan. And the catastrophic collapse of a flourishing society, all these things brought on by a government policy made out of fear and speculation rather than thought. Much that is closing may never open again. The time lost to school children and university students in debt for courses which have simply ceased to be taught. Of course, that debt should be revoked, but will it be? Is it irrecoverable, the time lost, that is? Just as the jobs which are being wiped out will not reappear when the panic at last subsides. Good choice of words there, when the panic at last subsides. Not when the pandemic deadly virus subsides. We are told that we must emulate Italy or China, but there is no evidence that the flailing despotic measures taken in this country has reduced the incidence of coronavirus. The most basic error in science is to assume that because B happens after A, that B was caused by A. Italy, Lombardy, especially, it seems to be a real apparent centre of the breakout of this virus in Italy, is notorious for toxic polluted air as is Wuhan in China, and that they were said to be too real, especially China, obviously the origin, we're told of this respiratory disease, and swing a cat, as they say, or swing a bat in Wuhan, and you'll hit someone because of the polluted air who has respiratory problems. Anyway, even before this, same in Lombardy, and also in terms of China. The thing is, China's already... A totalitarian state. The method of authoritarian lockdown, given that fact, could be presented to the West as the way to fight the virus. You can give that appearance to people, which is what happened. But you have to factor in 
shine at Wuhan especially is known for tops of polluted air and the way this all started in terms of identifying the virus which I talk about in episode 70 and the work of Dr. Andrew Kaufman K-A-U-F-M-A-N who's an MD doctor in New York State there's two videos he's done he's done a lot of interviews but two videos specifically one called a breakdown on current testing procedures and the other one called the rooster in the river of rats I highly recommend watching those in terms of understanding what really happened at the start of all this in China and identifying the virus, the scientific side of it. Anyway, the article continues. There may just be time to reconsider. I know that many of you long for some sort of coherent opposition to be voiced. The people who were paid to be the opposition do not seem to wish to earn their rations, so it is up to the rest of us. I despair that so many in the commentariat and politics obediently accept what they are being told. I have lived long enough and travelled far enough to know that authority is often wrong and cannot always be trusted. I also know that dissent at this time will bring me abuse and perhaps worse, but I am not saying this for fun or to be contrarian. That stupid word would suggest that you are picking an argument for fun. This is not fun. This is our future and if I do not lift my voice to speak up for it now, even if I do it quite alone, I should consider that I was not worthy to call myself English or British or a journalist and that my parents' generation have wasted their time saving the freedom and prosperity which they handed on to me after a long cruel struggle whose privations and grief we can barely imagine. That's a brilliant article there from Peter Hitchens. And a point that I make is a couple of points that I've not made before, but I guess they kind of fit into this story. I saw this pointed out by someone else, actually. Um, but what they said was nearly everyone who gets the flu knows they've got the flu. With COVID-19... A lot of people who get it, even if we accept that it exists, don't know they've got it. Flu can affect kids very badly, but COVID-19, basically kids are immune to it. But we don't lock down the world for the flu. You look at the number of people who die from flu each year. And just going back to Sweden, Sweden is a perfect example that lockdowns are useless for everyone, but those most at risk and the sick. Of course, that's why Waters suggests cocooning the most vulnerable and letting everyone else get on with their lives, as we do with the flu. Locking down a healthy is not quarantine, it's house arrest. Billions of people around the world are under house arrest when the figures just don't add up compared to seasonal influenza deaths every year. And people just go about their lives. So why on earth are healthy people in lockdown? It doesn't make any sense when you look at the figures because it's a scam. Healthy people are not locked down during flu season. So why are they locked down with COVID-19, especially when you consider the fact that COVID-19 is not backed by any science whatsoever? It's never been isolated and shown to exist and i've read and dr andrew kaufman who's looked at this as well he's read an enormous amount of papers i've read paper after paper after paper not one of them has successfully isolated the virus successful isolation of the virus and proof that it exists then it wouldn't be just on some official website on the internet that you don't know if you look for it it would be widely spread around when I've seen claims that the virus is isolated from people, they always cite the same paper, which Andrew Kaufman has exposed in a brilliant video of his, which I think I mentioned earlier, called Rooster in the River of Rats. And I've linked to that video and the other one I mentioned earlier in the description of previous episodes. I'll link to it in the description of this one. And there's no reported laboratory confirmation in studies of human-to-human transmission. There's the claim that COVID-19 can be passed from person to person, but there's no tests or studies done to confirm that's the case. As I've said before, this is a numbers game and a mind game. And the next story this week is social distancing. 
This was, this is in the Metro. Two meter social distancing rule was conjured out of nowhere, Professor claims. Advice to keep two metres apart while social distancing was conjured up out of nowhere, government advisors claimed. Robert Dingwall of the New and Emerging Respiratory Virus Threat Advisory Group has said there has never been a scientific basis for two metres, naming it a rule of thumb. Nerve Tag is an expert committee of the Department of Health that feeds into the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies. SAGE, which is advising the cabinet on the country's coronavirus response. Speaking to Radio 4, Mr. Dingwall said, We cannot sustain social distancing measures without causing serious damage to society, to the economy, and to the physical and mental health of the population. I think it will be much harder to get compliance with some of the measures that really do not have an evidence base. I mean, the two-meter rule was conjured up out of nowhere. He added, while there is a certain amount of scientific evidence for a one metre distance which comes out of indoor studies in clinical and experimental settings, there's never been a scientific basis for two metres. It's kind of a rule of thumb, but it's not like there is a whole kind of rigorous scientific literature that it is founded upon. The article continues. UK government advice currently recommends people maintain a distance of two metres while the World Health Organisation, which I exposed in the previous episode, advises staying at least one metre away from others. The WHO is assessing ongoing research on the ways COVID-19 is spread as experts debate whether tiny airborne droplets that remain in the air for minutes to hours can cause infection. So they don't know. Sociologist Mr. Dingwall has previously claimed the government should call off the dogs, saying he has seen no evidence at Nuremberg that there is a major threat of coronavirus transmission outdoors. He told the Telegraph it, it was entirely down to me, I'll be calling the dogs off. I don't think it is appropriate to harass sunbathers. It is an indictment of the political and scientific elite that they are not recognising that people living in flats and social housing do not have an alternative to go into parks. Metro.co.uk has contacted the government for comment. Well, the two meter rules interesting because viruses need a living host to survive they're not alive so once they're no longer inside a living host they cannot survive they don't have an an independent means of survival outside of a living host so once they're outside the body it's basically over for them and these airborne droplets that they talk about have never been definitively proven to contain COVID-19 as it's never been identified and there's been different figures suggested two meters one and a half meters one meters and there's been different figures communicated two meters one and a half meters one meter i mean if two meters and one and a half meters are not backed by science then is one meter surely you'd have to question it the idea of the ever increasing fine detail rules and recommendations which are not the same thing government recommendations are not the same as law but the idea of these finer and finer and finer detail of people's lives rules and recommendations is not protection from the alleged virus but rewiring the brain through epigenetics where experience rewires the brain's neural pathways and changes the way the brain processes information this happens all the time sometimes in a positive way or neutral way other times in a negative way you know in a perception manipulation way and that's what this situation is if you take an overview it's a collective psyop on the human population to train people to constantly consult the rule book as it were about what we can and cannot do on a scale that has never been seen before at least in modern times anyway everything people do everywhere they go if they go anywhere kids are being brought up in a world where people are divided divide and rule and where people and communicating through technology Driving people apart from each other means people are communicating through technology, which is perfect for the agenda to connect the human mind to technology run by AI and centred in Israel. 
as I explain in episodes 10, 11, and in terms of Israel's connection to this, episode 59, part 2. They're even building a new Silicon Valley in Israel. Israel's equivalent of the American Silicon Valley in California, which is called Silicon Wadi. And Israel is known as the startup nation, startup with tech companies and tech projects. And it's in from places like Beersheba in Israel that this AI global grid, which I talk about in episodes 10 and 11. And that's what this two-meter rule, social distancing, fine detail rules, people stand oh, you can't do this, or you should do that, or stay alert, is all about. It's about control. This is why people in authority, government, you see it in America, American press conferences, they don't stand two meters apart. They stand there, Fauci and Burtz and all these people, Trump, they are as they always are, because it's not about health, it's about control. And the next story this week is lack of treatment. This is in the Daily Mail. 2,700 cancers missed every week. Coronavirus crisis causes urgent GP hospital referrals to planets. Patients are reluctant to visit their doctor. Thousands of cancers are being missed every week because patients are not going to their GP. A leading charity is warned. Cancer Research UK said the numbers being referred by doctors for urgent hospital appointments with checks have dropped by 75% since the start of the coronavirus outbreak. Sarah Warner from the charity said about 2,300 cancers were being missed every week as a result of many patients. Operable cancers will become inoperable if they remained undetected. Separate figures estimate that another 400 cancers a week are being missed because screening for breast, cervical and bowel cancer has been suspended. I wonder where all the death figures are coming from. Normally up to a million patients a year would attend these vital checks to detect tumours early, but most health trusts have stopped sending out letters. There is a growing concern among medical professionals that patients with serious illnesses are suffering from the collateral damage of the coronavirus crisis. The Office for National Statistics revealed that the total number of deaths in England and Wales in the week to April 10th was the highest since January 2000, and just under 1,800 of the additional deaths were not attributed to coronavirus, suggesting the crisis is having a devastating wider impact. It comes as the new governor of the Bank of England said lifting the lockdown too early would damage the economy. The lockdown is damaging the economy. The coronavirus hospital death toll rose by 828 to reach 17,337, a sharp rise on the previous day due to the normal dip in weekend figures. The hospital death toll rose more accurately. The number of deaths in UK care homes doubled in two weeks as the epidemic gathered pace, the MNS revealed. Boris Johnson's fiance Carrie Simmons backed a campaign to ban wet markets where wildlife is sold for consumption, such as the one in Wuhan in China widely linked to the COVID-19 outbreak. A plane load of personal protective equipment, including 400,000, that number again, badly needed surgical gangs, was held up in Turkey for another day. Cancer research is alarmed by the drop in two-week cancer referrals where GPs are meant to refer patients with symptoms for urgent hospital appointments. Mrs Warner told the Mail, they have absolutely plummeted. People are really worried about going into a health setting. In a way, it's a measure of the effectiveness of the measures. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. You begin to see the unintended consequences. You've got two problems. You've got people not seeking help and screening has been paused, so you're not detecting cancers early in the way you would like to. What's so worrying for us is that we spent the past decade saying if you suspect cancer, please seek help. We absolutely know that our cancer survival rate is lower than comparable countries, often because we diagnose late and then we can't treat it curatively. We are really concerned about this and it's going to take a monumental effort when we push through the peak to allow cancer patients the services they need. Will there be an impact on cancer survival? Yes. 
Miss Warner, Mrs. Warner added. The great danger is the treatment being delayed too long and then it becomes inoperable. Explaining the reasons for the plummeting rates, she said, We think the vast majority of this is patients not presenting, but there is maybe an issue with some GPs not wanting to refer. She added that many hospitals have stopped carrying out diagnostic tests, particularly chest x-rays for lung cancer and colonoscopy procedures for bowel cancer. In another worrying development, hospitals have also paused operations to try to cure early stage cancers, including those affecting the bowel, stomach and lungs. Mrs. Warner added that some of the 2,700 missed cancers won't be diagnosed at a later date, either by GPs or at a Cancer research UK figures show that in a normal week, 42,000 patients will be referred by GPs on the urgent two-week pathway to a hospital specialist, but this number is currently 75% lower than normal, suggesting 31,000 and a half patients are not going to hospital for checks who should. The figures also show that about 200,000 patients a week are missing screening programmes which have been halted, of whom about 400 will be found to have cancer. The Academy of Medical Royal Colleges has urged patients to use the NHS if they are seriously ill and make concerns cancer, heart attacks and strokes are going undetected. Chairman Carrie McEwen said, We are very concerned that patients may not be accessing the NHS for care because they don't want to be a burden or because they are fearful about catching the virus. The NHS is still open for business and it is vitally important that if people have serious conditions or concerns they seek help. Nick Stripe, head of health analysis at the ONS, said it would take years to find out why so many extra people are dying despite not having coronavirus. Well, I can answer that question now. There is no COVID-19 and hospitals are empty, appointments cancelled and patients frightened to attend appointments, which this article talks about. That's why it won't take years to figure out. It's quite simple to figure out why so many extra people are dying despite not having the virus. There's the answer. And the final story this week is coronavirus death figures. This is in the Daily Mail. UK announces 449 more coronavirus deaths, the fewest for a fortnight as leading expert argues Britain's crisis peaked before lockdown amid claims fatality rate could be as low as 0.1%. The UK has announced 449 more coronavirus deaths, the fewest for a fortnight, taking Britain's total death toll to 16,509. England declared 429 deaths and a further 20 were confirmed across Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And 4,676 more people have tested positive for the virus, taking the total number of patients to 124,743. The day's death tolls are full on the 596 fatalities announced, previously half as many as the day before that. Although the statistics are known to drop after a weekend, a sharp fall adds to evidence that the peak of the UK's epidemic has blown over. At a government briefing, Chancellor Rishi Sunak said 17,971 people are still in hospital battling the coronavirus. Chancellor Rishi Sunak said 17,971 people are still in hospital battling the virus. Professor Dame Angela McLean, Chief Scientific Advisor for the Ministry of Defence, said the number of people in hospital has now been falling in London seven days in a row, and that officials look forward to seeing the same trend play out in other regions across the country. Mr Sunak said more than 140,000 companies had applied to the government's furlough scheme for grants to help cover the wages of more than a million people and he announced more money will be made available for early-stage businesses to help them set up during the economic turmoil. It comes as a leading expert at the University of Oxford, has argued the peak was actually about a month ago, a week before the lockdown started on March 23rd, and that draconian measures people are now living with were unnecessary. Professor Carl Hennigan claims data shows infection rates halved after the government launched a public information campaign on March 16th, urging people to wash their hands and keep two metres away from others. He said ministers lost sight of the evidence and rushed into a nationwide quarantine six days later after being instructed by scientific advisors who he claims have been consistently wrong during the crisis, especially Professor Neil Ferguson. Professor Hennigan held Sweden, which has not enforced a lockdown 
despite fierce criticism for holding its nerve and avoiding a doomsday scenario. The country has recorded just 392 new patients and 40 deaths, approximately 10% of the UK's figures. Britain's diagnoses have not been announced yet. In separate research, the Oxford professor said he estimates the true death rate among people who catch the virus is between 0.1 and 0.36%, considerably lower than the 13% currently playing out in the UK. Prince Philip, as if he cares, issued a statement saying, I want to recognise the vital and urgent work being done by so many to tackle the pandemic, thanking medical workers, scientists, key workers and volunteers. Will they be the medical workers in empty hospitals doing dance videos? Experts have pointed out that areas with large Muslim populations are conspicuously absent from the list of coronavirus hotspots, despite many being in at-risk inner-city boroughs, suggesting their lifestyles may protect them from the virus. Doctors have hid out of the Deputy Chief Medical Officer for England. Dr Jenny Harris for saying medical staff need to have a more adult conversation about protective equipment, which the NHS is in short supply. Well, they don't need it for COVID-19 because it doesn't exist. Billionaire Richard Branson has warned his airline version Atlantic will go bust without a government bailout, but he has offered a private island in the Caribbean as collateral against the loan. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has reached out to cabinet ministers from recovery tourism not to loosen the UK's lockdown, saying preventing a resurgence of the virus must be their number one priority. A symptom tracking app Surveillance app, run by King's College London, estimates that there were only around 460,000 people with an active symptomatic COVID-19 infection in the UK, down 75% from April 1st. NHS England confirmed that a total of 14,829 people have now died in its hospital and tested positive for COVID-19, which is not the same thing as dying of COVID-19, that you have contracted COVID-19. The patients whose deaths were announced were aged between 14 and 101 years old, and 15 of them had no health problems before catching the virus. So in other words, they had no health problems. The youngest of those was 49. Scientists are now in agreement that the peak of the UK's epidemic seems to have been on April the 8th when 803 people died. Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter from the University of Cambridge said, This clearly shows we are in a steadily but rather slowly improving position since the peak of deaths on April the 8th. But judging from the experience in Italy, this could be a lengthy process. Professor Hennigan, who also works as a GP, told Mail Online the peak of deaths occurred on April the 8th. And if you understand that, then you work backwards to find the peak of infections. That would be 21 days before then, right before the point of lockdown. He refers to a delay in the time it takes for an infected person to fall seriously ill and die, three weeks on average. He claims that if the government accepts that deaths peaked on April the 8th, then it must mean that infections were at their highest around three weeks prior. Data shows the rate of Britons with upper respiratory tract infections dropped from 20 per 100,000 people on March 15th to around 12 per 100,000 just six days later. The figures do not relate solely to coronavirus, but may be a good indicator because so few people were being tested for the deadly infection. Explaining the logic behind this claim, Professor Hennigan said, The UK government keeps saying it is using the best science, but it appears to be losing sight of what's actually going on. We've been getting scientific advice that is consistently wrong. It has failed to look at all the data and understand when the peak of infections actually occurred. He added, 50% reductions in infections occurred on March 16th, right when hand washing and social distancing was introduced. If you go look at what's happening in Sweden, they are holding their nerve and they have not had doomsday scenario. Our government has gone completely the wrong way around. And then some, when you look at the science, which calls into question even the existence of the virus, which I've talked about before. In Sweden, most schools, shops, pubs and restaurants remain open with the Swedes advised rather than forced to adopt social distancing measures. There have been 14,777 coronavirus cases in Sweden, giving it a per capita infections rate of 140 per 100,000 people. 
With a total of 1,580 deaths, the nation has a fatality rate of 15 per 100,000 people. By comparison, the UK has suffered 120,067 cases and 16,060 deaths, meaning 182 people per 100,000 catch the virus and 24 per 100,000 die from it. On top of much lower death and infection rates, the virus appears to be wreaking less havoc on its economy compared to the UK. Less than 6% of Sweden's workforce had filed claims for unemployment benefits, whereas a quarter of Britain's 1.4 million people have applied for universal credit. Universal credit, you get a income as long as you do what the government says. Professor Hennigan criticised the British government for banking on lockdown as its sole strategy and warned the damage on the economy will now be worse than the disease itself. He said, look at our partners in the EU. They're opening up again. We should be reopening society. We need to get a plan in place rapidly. We can't wait three weeks, then slowly open up. As well as major economic issues, austerity will impact people's physical and mental health. The second issue of lockdown is that it's making the public scared to engage with healthcare. People are avoiding going to GPs and hospitals because they believe there is so much infection there that they might catch it. That's really damaging. And if there's so much infection there, why are nurses and doctors making dancing videos having fun it seems not obviously struck down with any deadly virus figures show that more than 80 extra deaths are occurring every day in london alone before paramedics reach the victims because patients have been elected to phone for an ambulance in case they catch the virus in hospital professor hennigan said the decision to abandon mass testing or contact tracing had completely failed elderly people the shielding has failed he said 70 percent of all the deaths are in the over 75s 40 percent of all the nursing homes have the infection so whatever we have done is completely failed in terms of shielding why do the scientific advisors say to abandon mass testing and contact tracing we can see it work for other countries like germany and south korea so why if it was about resources look at what germany did it devolved responsibility getting universities and healthcare sites to carry out tests we centralized it but that was always going to be impossible for 66 million people in the uk we have failed the elderly care home and healthcare workers needed to be tested and isolated south korea was able to become one of the few countries to flatten the outbreak's curve through stringent contact tracing and mass testing. By mid-February, the nation had its first coronavirus test validated and approved for mass use. South Korea then launched a meticulous contact tracing regime. It mapped out the travel of each confirmed case down to details like their seat number on buses, planes and trains. This information was posted online so people could check if they came into contact with an infected person and therefore had to be isolated and tested. In the early stages, Britain was also hunting down close contacts of infected people and getting them to self-isolate. But as cases started to explode, they abandoned the strategy. Professor Hennigan said UK officials still don't have a grip on how many people actually have the infection, which makes it impossible to lift the restrictions anytime soon. He said testing small samples of the population and applying the results to the test to the rest of society was a really easy way out of the nationwide quarantine. The key is nobody has really understood how many people actually have the infection, he added. You could do that really quickly. Random sampling of 1,000 people in London who thought they had the symptoms. You could do that in the next couple of days and get a really key handle on that problem. And we would then be able to understand coming out of lockdown much quicker. In fact, the damaging effects now of lockdown are going to outweigh the damaging effects of the virus. Britain's coronavirus testing program appears to be in crisis as health bosses now have just 10 days to increase the number of daily swabs fivefold. Experts reiterated the critical importance of testing for a route out of the virus crisis but raised grave doubts over the accuracy of the tests, warning there are false negative results in as many as 15% of cases. There are false positive results in a lot of cases as well. Failures in the execution of the test, the timing and the process in laboratories is leading to results wrongly stating an infected patient is clear of the virus. Nurses in some areas have been told to expect false negatives in 30% of cases and to assume the patient has it if they have symptoms. Deputy Chief Medical Officer Dr Jenny Harris appeared to deny greater testing would save lives. While acknowledging it is important to investigate the link between more tests and reduced death rates, she said, I think the actual mechanism between the two is still not clear. 
Former World Health Organization official Professor Anthony Costello wrote on Twitter that Dr. Harry should resign if that was her belief. Infectious diseases expert Sir Jeremy Farrar, director of the Wellcome Trust, said the government had been too slow to increase its testing program. If you look at what has happened in Korea and Singapore, and indeed in Germany, there was a much quicker ramping up of testing added. Testing will be critical as we come out of this epidemic. Doctors said the false negative results could have serious consequences. What about the serious consequences of false positives? Dr. Andrew Preston at the University of Bath warned of the dangers for care home workers and NHS staff who wrongly believe they are safe to return to work. Coronavirus tests take swabs from the throat or nose before being sent to labs, but experts point out they often only work if the virus is present high up in a patient's throat or mouth, and often in the early stages it will still be deep in the lungs. A senior nurse at a hospital in the south of England said they believe they were still receiving false negatives in as many as 30% of cases in their area. The nurse, who did not want to be identified, said it's totally hit and miss whether an infected patient will have anything which can be detected in their throats. In the absence of widespread testing, the article continues, much of the data coming out about the true scale of the outbreak in the UK is statistical guesswork. One of the most consistent trackers has been the COVID symptom tracker app developed by King's College London. Latest analysis from the King's College COVID symptom tracker app estimates there are now around 462,700 people with symptoms of the killer infection. It's a drop of more than three quarters since the 1.9 million on April, the first nest staggering 93% since March 23rd when the app began to track Britain's outbreak. Developed with a health data company, Zoe, the COVID symptom tracker is helping predict the scale of the coronavirus outbreak in the UK. The public are encouraged to download the app and fill out forms which describe their health and ask about possible coronavirus symptoms. It's a surveillance app, nothing more. Healthy people, those who think they might have COVID-19 and those who have been officially diagnosed are all able to take part. Everyone is, basically, then, because you want mass surveillance of everybody. That's what this is about. The first set of data was released on March 26th. It suggested around 1 in 10 people were ill with or had already had COVID-19. When applied to the whole of the UK population, it met an estimated 6.6 million people had the virus in their third week in March. Following that, the team have used data from people who have logged in for seven days in a row to extrapolate to the overall UK population. Since March 23rd, people have been confined to their homes under lockdown and the symptoms tracker has shown cases falling as a result. On April the 1st, there were 1.9 million cases in the UK. Mathematical modelling shows in 1.4 million on April the 8th. Mathematical modelling. Computer modelling. Between April the 8th and April 16th, cases fell dramatically to 582,614, even further still to a record low of 462,700. The figures will not detect people who carry the virus but do not show symptoms. It can take up to a week for the telltale cough and fever to appear. Separate research by Professor Carl Hennigan, who said the UK's outbreak peak was a month ago, suggested that COVID-19's death rate may be as low as 0.1%. Statistics show the UK's current case fatality rate, the number of patients who die after testing positive, is around 13.4%. But scientists warn this is wildly inaccurate because it only takes into account cases that have been confirmed in laboratory. Health bosses controversially decided early on in the crisis to only swab patients in hospital, missing potentially millions of cases. Two leading Oxford University experts estimate the true death rate is up to 134 times lower than that, between 0.1 and 0.36%. But the death ratio will be higher for the elderly and those with underlying health conditions, the pair said. Professor Kyle Hennigan and Dr. Jason Noak took into account the trends in outbreaks across the world, but warned the figure could still change. Using this mathematical equation, it would suggest the number of cases in the UK could be between 4.5 to 16 million. Official figures show only 120,000 Britons have tested positive for COVID-19, which began spreading on UK soil in February. That's not the same as contracting COVID-19.
Several scientists have resorted to guessing the size of the UK's outbreak, including another Oxford team who said that to half of Britain may have been struck down. Other German researchers estimate the number was between 1 to 2 million and that fewer than 2% of the cases were being diagnosed. Professor Hennigan and Dr. Oakes said antibody testing would help paint a clearer picture by allowing officials to work out how many have been infected. This is believed to be key to lifting the lockdown on the UK, something which is on an mysterious timescale after the government added at least another three weeks. Boris Johnson moved to snuff out cabinet pressure for an early easing of lockdown, making clear that a second peak in the coronavirus outbreak is the biggest threat to the country. The PM intervened from his recuperation at Chequers in Buckinghamshire to warn there must not be any let-up in the draconian curbs until scientists are sure the disease will not flare up again. Mr Johnson has told First Secretary Dominic Raab and senior aides that moving too quickly would be the worst outcome for both the economy and public health. The Premier's stance emerged amid signs of cabinet splits over how quickly to ease the restrictions with fears the crippling impact of lockdown on business and jobs will kill more people than the virus itself. Hawks in government have been pointing out the NHS now has some spare capacity to treat patients and suggesting that it shouldn't be allowed to run hot to revive the economy. Chancellor Rishi Sunak and Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove are thought to be among those pushing for an earlier release. Asked for Mr Johnson's stance on the timing of lockdown, the spokesman said, The big concern is the second peak. That is what ultimately will do the most damage to health and the most damage to the economy. If you move too quickly, the virus could begin to spread exponentially again. Another section here. Testing and contact tracing the best way out of lockdown. Testing and tracking patient social networks is the most promising short-term approach to lifting the COVID-19 lockdown, according to a major report. Tracking people's social networks is a more accurate way of saying it, rather than patient social networks. This is about surveillance and control. The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development Studies said isolating people with coronavirus and tracing their contacts what they also isolate, an approach abandoned by the UK government early on, is a key to controlling further outbreaks of coronavirus. It comes as former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt took to social media to say contact tracing needs to be our next national mission. It said once the number of infected people has successfully been brought sufficiently down, quick suppression of new waves of viral infections will be key. Testing strategies are central to achieve this. The study argued that strong and effective testing, tracking and tracing is needed and is the most promising approach in the short run to bringing and keeping the epidemic under control without resorting to widespread lockdowns of social and economic life. It added that triple T approach may be used to plot the initial or recurrent spreads of a pathogen aiming for a rapid extinction of local well-defined outbreaks that collectively could control an epidemic. The government has come under intense scrutiny over its testing and contact tracing policy out of public health. England advised ministers in early March that contact tracing should be stopped. PHE told the news agency in mid-March that because the virus is more widespread and we will not necessarily be able to determine where someone has contracted the virus, contact tracing is being stopped in favour of a more targeted approach. And the final section here, COVID-19 death rate could be just 0.1%. COVID-19's death rate is low as 0.1% according to a new analysis of the pandemic. Statistics show the UK's current case fatality rate, the number of patients who die after testing positive, is around 13.4%. But scientists warn this is wildly inaccurate because it only takes into account cases that have been confirmed in laboratory. Health bosses controversially decided early on in the crisis to uninsure patients and hospital missing potentially millions of cases. Professor Carl Hennigan and Dr Jason Oak took into account the trends in outbreaks across the world but when the exact figure was likely to still change. They analysed data from Iceland, which suggested a CFI of around 0.2%, as well as deeper studies from China that showed it was also below 1%.
Professor Hennigan and Dr. Rokes announced in him that just 364,000 people can attain a more accurate estimate of CFR and IFR during the pandemic. The IFR relate to all cases, not just ones that are confirmed. This is because of their higher rates of testing. Iceland carries out more tests per capita than anywhere in the world, as well as a smaller population. They calculated the best guess for the case fatality ratio was 0.72%, but said halving this figure to mean that IFR would be an overestimate. And they added in swine flu, the IFR ended up with 0.02%, fivefold less than the lowest estimate during the outbreak. In Iceland, where the most testing per capita has occurred, the IFR lies somewhere between 0.01% and 0.19%. Using the mathematical equation 0.1 to 0.36% for Britain, it would suggest the number of cases in the UK could be between 4.5 to 16 million. The visual figures show only 120,000 Britons have tested positive for COVID-19, which began spreading on UK soil in February. Several scientists have resorted to guessing the size of the UK's outbreak, including another Oxford team who said up to half of Britain may have been struck down. Other German researchers have estimated the numbers between 1.2 million and that fewer than 2% of cases were being diagnosed. Professor Hennigan and Dr. Rote said antibody testing would help to paint a clearer picture by allowing officials to work out how many have been infected. Well, let's talk about peaks and has Britain hit the peak, has this country hit the peak? Peaks and surges could be created merely by changing the way people are diagnosed and figures are reported. I explained this in more detail in episode 69. In episode 71... I explain how testing positive for the virus does not mean someone has the virus or has died from it, for that matter. A second wave, which we hear a lot about, is planned. Or oh, there might be a second wave because it's planned to be a second wave. And that will be created exactly the same as the first wave was created, whereby case figures and death figures and the testing method will be exactly the same as for the first wave. A scam, basically, because eventually there would come a point where it didn't make sense anymore to remain in lockdown if we go with the official version of the situation. So to achieve the agenda this pandemic was designed to achieve, society will reopen as it is in certain places already. But then a second wave will hit. So then everything goes back into lockdown. So it looks like there was an effort to reopen society So by the politicians and government. They say, oh, we did try, but then this second wave hit and, you know, we've got to go back into lockdown. So mind game. In terms of figures, regular appointments and consultations are being cancelled, so more people are dying at home because they can't get to hospital. 8,000 in the UK, last figure I saw, and they'll be recorded as COVID-19 deaths, a large amount of them, if not all of them. A lot of people are dying and are going to die as a result of the lockdowns. People will be committing suicides, in fact, some already are because of the lockdown due to lack of independent livelihood, the effect on their businesses and mental health impacts. Mental health impacts don't seem to be talked about nearly as much as they should compared to other elements of this situation, from what I've seen anyway. People are left untreated in hospitals. Doctors and nurses have come out and said this before YouTube deletes their videos. And you know, people like Susan Wachiski at YouTube and Sergei Brin and Larry Page of Google, which owns YouTube, they need to be made to answer for their actions when all this is over. As do people like Bill Gates and Neil Ferguson, Chris Whitty, Chief Medical Officer in Britain, in England. All these people need to be made to answer for their actions because YouTube has acted absolutely disgracefully in censoring anything. Whether it's true or not is not what YouTube are interested in. What they're interested in is whether it's challenging the official narrative, which is the World Health Organization narrative, which is Bill Gates. Elderly people are being encouraged to sign do not resuscitate forms, even without knowing what they're signing in some cases. That's come out in the mainstream media. Hospitals are empty with nurses planning the choreography for the next dance video. Nursing staff are being laid off when you would need them on the front lines in war zone hospitals, which is what we're told NHS staff in Britain and other countries' healthcare staff are working in when hospitals are empty. 
Governments are now adding to the figures people who have died outside of hospital when those deaths are recorded without confirmation as COVID-19 deaths. Healthcare staff are being told to write COVID-19 on the death certificate no matter what. People are being diagnosed only on symptoms and with the RT-PCR test, which is testing for genetic material. COVID-19 symptoms are being expanded so as to include more illnesses as COVID-19. Hospitals in America are given extra financial support if they place patients on ventilators, even if they don't need them, which are dangerous. Ventilators certainly doesn't need one, that's dangerous. When those patients die, they'll be reported as COVID-19 deaths and recorded as COVID-19 deaths. The Office for National Statistics System in Britain is counting not the number of people who die every week, but the number of deaths registered per week. This naturally leads to slight delays in the recording of numbers as the registration process could take a few days. However, with the coronavirus death, since it's a national emergency, we're told, they're now including provisional figures, which will be included in the data set in subsequent weeks. This leaves them wide open to this leaves them wide open to either accidentally or deliberately reporting the same deaths twice, once provisionally and then once officially a week later. The figures also include those not tested for COVID-19, but suspected to be COVID-19, where COVID-19 is presumed to be a contributory factor. And this is a couple of extracts from one of their documents. Analyze the data by date of death and look at registrations after 20th of March. There were 181 deaths involving COVID-19 occurred in week 12, which is higher than the figures the DHSC published as it includes deaths related to COVID-19 that took place outside of hospitals and those not tested for COVID-19. Because of the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, our regular weekly deaths release now provides a separate breakdown of the numbers of deaths involving COVID-19. That is, where COVID-19 or suspected COVID-19 was mentioned anywhere on the death certificate, including in combination with other health conditions. If a death mentions COVID-19, it will not always be the main cause of death. It will sometimes be a contributory factor. This new bulletin summarizes the latest weekly information and will be updated each week during the pandemic. Sometimes be a contributory factor or believed to be a contributory factor, it should say. The government is telling doctors it's okay to list COVID-19 as a cause of death, where there's literally no evidence the deceased was infected. That means there are potentially huge numbers of COVID-19 deaths that were never even tested for the disease. And so therefore are the front people for these internet giants and tech companies in Silicon Valley, like Bill Gates. And when you look at the connections to Bill Gates by other people involved in the forefront of this so-called pandemic, which I talked about in the last episode. You look at the fact that the current head of the World Health Organization, a guy called Ted Ross, who I mentioned in the last episode, who has had connections to Bill Gates for a long time, not just since he's been head of the World Health Organization, which Bill Gates is the second biggest funder. Technically, the biggest funder now that Trump has suspended funding from the American government, but also Ted Ross was on the board of a organization called Gavi, Bill Gates organization, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. And when you look at all these connections, you see a massive web and all roads seem to come back to Bill Gates. And vaccines also contain nanotechnology, which I talk about in episodes 10 and 11, I believe I talk about in episode 10, certainly episode 11. And this is all part of the technology agenda, which the Silicon Valley companies are massively involved with, including Microsoft. And it's a perception mind game. It's not a medical situation, it's a mind game. And therefore, the whole situation can be over when people take the time to investigate for themselves beyond BBC News, CNN and government statements. Balls in our court, but then again, it always was. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections. 
that's pay-per-view more to come next week until then goodbye